Welcome to the next episode of the OWA Talks podcast. I am your co-host, Stephanie, here with my other co-host, Sandra. And today, our guest is Dr. Beverly Vianis, and she is a practicing optometrist out here near me in San Diego, California. So welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Stephanie and Sandra. I am very excited to be with you today on this podcast. I listen to a lot of podcasts, podcasts, but I never imagined myself being on a podcast. So thank you. I'm excited. So before we get into anything, I have to ask you, we looked at your OWA um, like profile and you put one of your nicknames as Dr. Beyonce. And I have to ask what the origin story of that one is. That is so funny. Well, it is part of how I got into OWA. I won uh, a trip to um, Lake Como because I actually went to uh, an event by Luxottica. It was called the Art of Luxury in Beverly Hills. And I put in my name in the raffle and I won that raffle ticket. And then the reps, the Luxottica reps, just started to call me Dr. Beyonce. I, it was a nickname they gave me. Um, and then it just kind of stuck. They kept on seeing me and calling me Dr. Beyonce. I don't know why I don't look like her. but <laughs> So let's get started. So tell us a little bit about your background and a little bit about yourself. Sure, a little bit about myself. I've been a practicing optometrist for 29 years. I graduated from Southern California College of Optometry. I was definitely involved when I was there at school. I was vice president and then later became president of my class. My class was class of 1991. This is where I met my husband, Dr. John Pack. And yes, it was love at first sight. We saw eye to eye. We caught each other's eye across the room. We heard it all while we were dating all these puns. And so soon after graduation, we got married and we opened up our first practice cold. And two years later, called us crazy, but we opened up our second office cold and we had our first child. And I'm proud to say she graduated from optometry school. She was SCCO's class of 2020. Our practices are located in South San Diego and um, we practice full scope optometry. I also am currently director of charitable outreach for Total Vision LLC. And uh, it was a private equity that just acquired us two years ago. So optometry is definitely a family affair for you. Yes, it is. Um, unfortunately, we haven't convinced our son to go in that um, direction, but who knows, you know, things can change. <laughs> well, it was interesting for me because I, I work at an optometry school and yes. um, what, what's been fascinating is how many people actually meet in optometry school and get married and, um, and it doesn't seem like that was ever their plan. Uh, yes, I haven't found I, that in other places. I think we had four couples that came out of our class, our graduating class. So yeah. But, Definitely the time you spend preparing to become an optometrist and work time and practice in labs. And it's, it makes sense. I can see how it, how it works, but I'm, 
It's great to hear. I have a great story that's worked out really well, personally and professionally. Yes. So can you tell us a little bit about when you became a member of OWA and about some of your involvement with the organization? Sure. Um, like I said, I joined OWA in 2019. I went on a trip to Lake Como and I was blessed to have met Deb Bolkin that happened to be the, the senior director of Luxottica from the Eastern region, but also president or vice president, soon to be president of OWA. And um, we just had this connection. We had some great conversations on that trip. And as soon as I got home, she sent me this OWA bracelet that was attached to a card that had their tagline connect, inspire, and lead. And I just really like that. You know, so I, I went home and Googled OWA and looked at their mission about women supporting women through networking, education, and peer support. So I just, I just was definitely that, that resonated with me and it just happened to come at the right time because I feel like that was missing in my career at the present time. And so I um, joined OBD OWA. They had a mentorship there, which I thought was really, really cool. I asked Deb to be my mentor and I went to Vision Expo West that year, 2019. And she introduced me to some amazing women in the industry. And I have to say each connection, I was just impressed by who these women were, what they've done, how they got there. And what I was really, really amazed by is how much they supported me and, um, and shared their story with me. So that's how I got involved in OWA. And then soon after, um, it was actually the beginning of this quarantine, how I got involved in OWA more is the beginning of the quarantine, I was, my position on the private equity was no longer needed on, on the board. So I happened to be invited to OWA's uh, committee meeting. So it's true about what they say, when one door closes, another door opens. And so I was on that meeting, I was listening to them and they were talking about how can um, we engage our members? How can we connect when we can no longer meet socially in person? And, you know, sometimes you think of things like in the oddest times, you know, um, my thought process came to me in a shower where I, where, you know, the Holy Spirit, I feel, talks to me really clearly. I came up with my first PowerPoint presentation. Thank you for my daughter who taught me how to do Zoom and PowerPoint. So I presented this PowerPoint presentation to the board and that's when Coffee Break actually was created, connecting one sip at a time. And I happened to do the first one and here's in Southern California where um, I think it was very successful. There was 22 women on that call. And I do feel like they felt this was a networking venue that they felt connected and they supported and validated what they were going through through this pandemic and inspired. So I'm happy to say that Coffee Break has moved across the OW platform into the other states. So very happy about that. 
That's awesome. I know like if you even, I, I don't know if you guys have done this, but I've gone into like the member list for OWA and just looked at some of the other women that are part of the OWA. And it's like, wow, like we have such an amazing membership group. And it's, it's, I really have always felt like, you know, we're always trying to support each other. So that's, I love, that's what I love about the OWA. So I'm glad you had this experience. Um, so tell us a little bit about, um, food for thought about kind of how and why it was developed and kind of what your vision was for, for it. Yes. Food for thought, another shower idea. (laughs) Um, well, you know, our whole world was going through this pandemic, right? And now our nation was facing some challenges of division, of anger, fear, you know, frustration, and just exhaustion. We all witnessed someone dying, a man dying, George Floyd, on social media. We watched our world go through, our nation go through rioting, and and eluding and you know my heart was broken and I'm sure all of us our hearts was broken to watch that and I just wanted to do something just a little something I've I've um, always remembered a quote from Mother Teresa which says small take small things with great love so I started doing small things around my office by putting up signs in my office uh, you know where sayings that said, like, if you can do anything in this world, be kind, two kind deeds. I had pictures of different color hands holding hands in the shape of a heart. Um, and so, and I also listened to a lot of podcasts. And one of the podcasts that I listened to had Maria Shriver, and she talked about a story about a Black American woman who was very fearful of police, the police. And she decided to face her fear by inviting these police over to her house for her homemade cookies and coffee. And there, I believe she was able to answer, ask, ask questions and listen and learn. And, you know, this was a small action, but it was big. And, you know, not all of us can go out and protest and, you know, and be activists and speakers. But she did something small, and I think we can all do this singular action to make small differences in this world. And this simple cookie and coffee brought these two together. So I, I actually I'm going to tell you a story about, you know, I'm going to digress to a different story. But I remember when I was about eight or nine, I, my dad packed me a lunch. And she, he happened to put um, a a favorite Filipino snack for me. It was called Shopao. It's actually a Chinese version of Bao. It's a white bread, a round bread that has meat in it. And I remember opening up my lunch back and seeing that, and I was really embarrassed to take out my food. Um, I didn't want to stand out. I didn't want to be different. And I said, darn, could my dad have just packed me a, just a simple ham sandwich with chips? And so I literally probably, I went hungry that day. I threw it away. And in contrast, uh, I had my best friend who was half Japanese and American. And I think we were about 13 years old and she invited us to her, her home. And, um, it was me and another friend 
and she asked, did you, do you have, you guys ever tried sushi? And at that time, uh, sushi wasn't popular. And I remember her taking out her seaweed and saying this was seaweed and me and my friend made faces and saying like, ooh, yuck. And so she continued with her nori, which is the seaweed is called nori. And then she started to season her rice with rice vinegar and placing it on the nori and putting some preserved meat in it and rolling it in front of us and cutting it so nicely in little discs and putting them on a beautiful Japanese plate. And then even at that age, 13, I thought how special that was, you know, to invite us into her home and to share her culture and her heritage and, and just explain the whole process to us. I thought that was just really special. And so when I came across sushi again, I was a little bit more familiar with that. And so then the idea of food for thought, where food can break down barriers and just bring us to the table. So the vision for food for thought is to actually share our culture, our heritage, our traditions, across our platform using something very simple, food. When you think of food and you bring people to the table, you think of people sharing um, a meal. And of course, the food was cooked with much love and it's meant an intention to nourish. And I think that's where we can actually find healing begin as we start to learn and appreciate our differences. So next time we'll be a little bit more familiar with each other. So that's how Food for Thought was kind of developed and they liked the idea. So I put on the first feature that would be featured after this podcast. Um, it would be me talking about a Filipino traditional dish called pancet. And the idea is to do like a little short video for two minutes, share the recipe and a picture of the dish. And you'll see that you know, this this noodle dish for Filipinos is something that's served at all our traditional and celebrations for birthdays and anniversaries because the long noodles, we don't cut it when we cook it because the long noodles is supposed to symbolize long life and a long marriage. So that's how Food for Thought was developed. I really love that. I mean, it sounds like such a great way to to share about culture and get people involved, especially now that everyone's at home cooking and potentially could try new things. So then yeah. is, your, is your hope that sort of monthly there'd be a new person sharing a different food recipe and connection to their culture? Yes, I, that's what I envision. It could be a culture, it could be somewhere they visited that they learned about their food or it could be some of their traditions that they use at home, whether it's food or food or drinks. It could be a lot of different things. It could be something from their state that is their as unique to their state. So something that can that they can share that's different to them, and that we can actually show diversity throughout our platform. Such a great idea, and I think another thing is that. A connection with with members and having that opportunity to um, get to learn more about the, the women that we work so much with. Um, thinking about that in, in the optical industry and optometry, have you ever experienced any inequality? Yes, I have. Um, 
I just remember uh, just right after we graduated from optometry, we opened up our first office cold. So we were at Vision Expo. And I just remember we were buying instruments for our new office and we were at a, um, a vendor, an, an instrument uh, booth. And I just remember the representative, two of them, a woman and a man, that were, I was standing next to my husband and they were making just contact with my husband the whole entire time. And I felt like they felt like he was the one who had the ultimate decision and making um, of what we were going to put in our new office. And my husband snickered because he saw my eyes go down to my badge. And because I was trying to make sure that my badge was not turned around and that my badge actually said optometrist on it because I thought they thought maybe I was just his wife or a staff member that they didn't make eye contact with me. And what I also felt like at the time when I first graduated, when we would meet with reps, he would be called Dr. John Pack and I would be called Beverly. And I, I don't mind being called Beverly, but I just felt like it should be consistent. They should call him John. He should call me Beverly. And, um, you know, and one of the most, um, one of the most, um, one of the experiences that I thought I was appalled about is there were, I was with a couple of the male optometrists and one of them, I don't know why he said this, but he, knowing that I was there, but blurted out saying optometry schools need to stop accepting Asian women into our optometry school. And I was dumbfounded. I didn't know how to respond to that. You know, he was saying, these Asian women, I can't understand their English. And all these women are just going to have babies and not promote our private practice. And I, I till this day, I don't know how I could have responded to that. Um, they all just kind of laughed. The group just laughed. And I, you know, I, I guess today I could say, well, I'm Asian and do you understand me? And I've been practicing for 28 years, had my private practice. So those are some of the inequalities I, uh, I felt during the optical industry. That is <laughs> crazy. I mean, and unfortunately, I think it still really exists today. One of the optometrists and I went to a, um, a workshop by Harvard and it was all about medical health doctors. And there's a whole session on um, those inequalities. And if you have a white coat on, they think of you as a tech or as a nurse, as opposed to a doctor. And those things really live on. And even in writing and how people look at you. And um, it, it's very sad that um, some of those those life things tend to, to live on. Um, how, how do you think that those unfortunate circumstances impacted you and impact how you practice and how you see the world and how you interact with others? Yeah, so I have a daughter that graduated from optometry and her class was 80% women. 
20 for 20% male. You know, I, I look at that and say, well, we need to represent what our industry is looking like. I look at um, my practice. I make sure that it's a diverse members um, and team there. I, I, it is sad to say that still today, most of our CEOs are men of industries and we need to, and, and congratulations to you, Sandra, Dr. Sandra, for being the dean of a school. We need more women as deans of our optometry school. You, get, you actually model what our industry is looking like. So congratulations to you. Thank you. And, and I think like one of the big things is we were actually meeting with some students yesterday and we have a diversity committee and they were talking about um, why is it that so many women are going into optometry, which is also a trend, maybe not as high as in the optometric field. Um, although I think optometry is a great field and profession to go into. Um, but, I, but I think that that's a great testament to some of the things that are being done. I mean, I think that a lot more needs to happen um, but just even when you think about who's going to college and who's graduating from college, um, women tend to be doing much better in those areas, which then that's how you get into the pipeline to become a doctor. Right. And so it's, it's, it's very natural. But when you think about 28 years from now, hopefully that dialogue is very different. I mean, professions are going to be much more female dominated. So it's trying to really get those voices out there. Yes. I agree. And I, and I think you kind of touched on something that I find interesting is that we are have seeing this shift of female optometrists, but I feel like the other uh, entities and businesses that are related to this industry are still very male dominated. And so right. it's going to be interesting to see how that kind of wave happens throughout the industry where all these other companies are going to start you know, having more women at the top um, because they're still very male dominated. Um, but, you know, looking at, you know, optometrists are the, the main focus of this entire industry. And now if they're going to be mostly women, how that's, you know, going to play out. And now that some of the older optometrists who are, when it was a male dominated field um, are going to be retiring and we're just going to have more women. And I don't know, that's definitely something that appeals to me because I, you know, I'm all about having more women as doctors it's it's very admirable for me because i'm here now talking to two doctors you know and I'm, I'm not a doctor so it's definitely you know i like being able to look up and seeing strong women in these positions so i'm all about it i love having more women optometrists and i think women are changing today too i believe there has been women out there that felt like they needed to change and be more like a more of a male figure and so which caused them to be I believe competitive and not supporting women I feel like they felt like there was very little positions available so they had to fight for their spot on on the leadership team or that position but I feel like we should have more positions 
available now today, and I think there is, and that's why you see more. Uh, thank you to OWA, who is continuing to support women and trying to push women in that um, direction in leadership. So tell us about, um, have you ever made assumptions based on your beliefs and how have you like kind of shifted to change from, from doing that to not doing that now? Oh my gosh. Um, I'm really embarrassed to kind of say this, uh, uh, tell this story. I was picking up my son from his tennis practice from high school and his coach, his coach's name was Coach Ruben, and he gave his keys uh, to one of the tennis students, and uh, he happened to leave with his keys, and he had no way of going home. So my son asked if I can give him a ride home. And on my way home, I was having a conversation with him and saying, I'm going to take my son to Boston to um, look at some colleges out there. And he said, oh, I went to school in Boston. And so now this coach is elderly, he's Hispanic, someone of color. And I just said, oh, so you went to Boston College? And he goes, no, I didn't go to Boston College. And I said, oh, uh, one of the cities, you know, city colleges out there? And, um, to my surprise, he said, no, I went to Harvard University. And I went, you went to Harvard University? I mean, even my tone of voice, I'm kind of embarrassed today because my belief was people that went to Harvard were white American presidents that go to Harvard. That was my belief. I didn't believe people went there to Harvard of color. And so I went on to even put myself even further into this ditch. I said, so did you, you major in physical education? And he said, no, I got a doctorate in education. I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing to myself? And he went on to say, he caught, probably saw that it was embarrassed. He went on to say, I went to Notre Dame for my undergraduate. I was a tennis champion. My family is all tennis champions. One of his brothers played with Billie Jean King and went on to say that he was a retired uh, superintendent for the public schools here in San Diego. So what I learned from that is that I need to ask questions. I don't need to answer them for him. I need to ask the questions and wait for someone to give them to me. And I need to listen, I need to learn about someone. So that's what I learned from that experience and to not make assumptions of where they could be and what they have accomplished in life. So that was a big learning experience for me. So coming from Boston, when you think about Boston College or Boston University, there's two separate ones. They're really high-ranked institutions and well-respected. Um, yeah. So so making that guess, um, sometimes people don't always realize that Harvard's in Boston as well. I mean, they know it's somewhere in the Northeast. Um, yeah. So it's it's. But I get where you were going with with the assumptions, and I think that that's one of those 
natural tendencies that we tend to do, right? So we start thinking, um, we start answering our own questions before we even ask them. And to some Great. extent, that's good for us, right? <laughs> but then how many opportunities are we missing if we're not really giving them a chance to really answer them for us? And I think that that's, that's one of the things that I work really hard with our students is, especially when thinking about how you talk with patients and how you, we have a very diverse clinical system and they have a chance to meet with them. And we, we talk a lot about don't write those narratives for them. Um, Correct. Even for me, it's talking with some of our students and you just learn so much by trying to change how you ask a question because sometimes the things that we think, which are very, like they've served us well in, in right. many of our lives. So I think that you made some very logical things from what you knew from him. Or when you think about Boston, you just, right. again, those are really high respected institutions that, uh, that, that people would say, wow, that'd be really awesome that you went there. But I, but I think it's that, that that's just our natural tendency to make some of those things. And when, when you think about sort of the optometric industry as, as a whole, how do you think that we can start to change? I know one of the things you thought about was don't, don't write the questions for the person, ask them in a way to have them answer them. But do you think that there's other ways to sort of change beliefs to really promote more equality, diversity, and inclusiveness? Yeah. Um, so it was another a podcast that I listened to. I have to say that during this quarantine, people said their guilty pleasures was Netflix. Mine was podcasts. I listened to so many podcasts. So this one was on a John Maxwell's leadership uh, podcast that had a guest speaker there, which is Mile McPherson. And he was a pastor, but also an author of the book, Third Option. And um, he talked about in groups and out groups. And in-groups doesn't necessarily have to be like race, like a white group or a black group, but it could be like all males or it could be all married males. It could be females or all mothers, but there's something about an in-group that you, you know the different variants to that in-group because you're in the in-groups. Like let's say I'm Asian and in the Asian in group, I know the different variants. You know, some people say all Asians look alike, but I would know all the different variants. But the the thing about the out groups is that the out group is going to be always a blind spot for the in group. And when you talk about optometry and you talk about blind spots, Blind spots is a blind spot in the eye is where we don't have photoreceptors. So we don't see, right? So our blind spot in life is that we don't see it. We don't experience it. So that is our blind spot. So I think as an industry, we need to get to know that, that out group. We need to really understand them and perhaps what our industry can do is that we need to start bringing in the out group into the in group to get a different perspective of all people and we need to have different representatives for uh, so that we can have that one voice so 
you know, I would say we need to challenge our industry by we need to look at our team. We need to look at our members. We need to um, start looking at our leaderships and looking at our board members. How does that look like? Do we have a, a representative all in our team members? Um, we can all, when we start looking the same, like let's say our leadership is all corporate and, and that's the in group, but we don't have anybody from the out group, which is the people working at the trenches. They're not going to see what the out, out, the out group looks at. So when we have everybody the same, I feel like we are missing out. We surround ourselves with the same people. We are missing out and we can do so much more. We're limiting ourselves when we don't have inclusive, inclusiveness and diversity. So that's what I feel that industry can do a little bit better. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. Um, I have to say, we've, we've done several of these podcasts, and every time at the end of the podcast, I think that was the best one we've done. And then every week we do, or every month we do a better one. And I got to say, this was definitely my favorite one that we've done so far. And, you know, talking about things that, you know, we're all, everyone's thinking about right now. And you know, touching on diversity and, you know, hearing your stories were, were really interesting to me. And I, you know, I, this was a great episode. I'm very excited. So, um, yeah. So did you have anything you wanted to add? No, I just want to say thank you to OWA um, for letting me be part of this great organization. And it's allowed me during this quarantine to be able within our uncertainties come creativity so has been able to allow me to be creative and you know make a difference thank make you a so difference. much thank you so much for all of your um, work and, and dedication I mean you're definitely inspirational to to Stephanie and I and I'm sure our listeners as well but um your, your mentoring and, and giving of your time and resources really has the potential to impact the, the whole industry, um, especially our, our members. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Stephanie and Sandra. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for joining us today. And um, I really think uh, our listeners will be really happy to have listened to this one. So thank you so much for joining us. And thank you. thank you all of our listeners for listening and we'll see you next month uh, for our next episode.